Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 20, verses 45 to chapter 21, verse 4. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's all right. <clears throat> I find it a funny thing, though, uh, wearing glasses, because people, they talk to you and they say things like, oh, you look really smart. <laughs> and I'm like, did I look dumb before that? Looks like we got. Yep, I'm doing the same thing right here. Yeah, so so we tend to uh, we tend to try to impress impress people, uh, and this passage that we come to today in Luke chapter twenty, verse forty-five to twenty-one verse 4. It is a section that deals with this whole idea of impression and outward appearances. And Jesus, you're going to see here today, has some warnings for people about people who are focused on their outward appearance. Have you ever been in a situation where you're really, really trying to impress someone? If you're struggling to come up with that, uh, I just encourage you to think about high school. You'll probably find a memory in there somewhere in, as you think about high school. Uh, I'm having trouble. Is this still on? There we go. Take a little more. Thanks. Um, so yeah, we go through high school and we, we have this, we have this uh, idea that we need to impress people. For me, her name was Heidi. And, uh, and Heidi was a couple years older than me. And I just thought... Heidi was the most beautiful person I had ever, ever seen in my entire life. And I was at that ripe age where you begin to notice uh, young men tend to notice young, young women. And, and I remember I, I, I met Heidi, I, I, I saw her, and I, I had this instance where one day after school, her car broke down and she couldn't get home. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, it's fate. It's happening. I saw life stretching before me. I saw our children. I saw our grandchildren. No offense, Josh. This is, uh, I, saw, I saw our grandchildren, right? And, 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 and I thought, everything is aligning right now. And so I did what most teenage boys do at that time. I thought, I got to make a good impression. So the first thing I did was, how am I doing? Uh, you know, passable, right? I, I, I looked down at my t-shirt that I was wearing, my no fear t-shirt that day, and I thought, well, you know, 
I could have picked a different one, but, th but, but this will do. But what I was really, really proud of was the car that I had. I really, I was like an old sort of classic car. It was an old Mazda RX-7. And this, you know, I was like, this is going to be great. And I remember I, I saw Heidi and, I, and she, she said, oh, hi. She's like, I think I know you. I said, I know you. Yeah. She said, I, I think I know you, and um, you, you, you go to my church, right? I said, yeah, yeah, I do, uh-huh. And, uh, and, and I said, you seem to be having some trouble there. Can I help? And uh, she's like, oh, oh, please, please, that, that, that would be so helpful. And uh, so, you know, as things unfolded, I, you know, I opened the door, you know, hop in the car. Oh, tell me where you live. We didn't have GPS on the phones back then. And I said, tell me where you live. Okay, yep. Uh, hop in the car, get going, and, and drop her off at her house. And she never spoke to me again. <laughs> at least in school. <laughs> I think later on in college we might have said hi. Uh, but, but I remember that distinct feeling that... that I need to make this happen. This is my moment. This is when I need to, to, to make that impression. I need to make sure that, that, you know, there's no hair out of place. I need to make sure that my fit is on point, as the kids say. I need to make sure that everything just is working for me because I need this person to see me in the best light possible. Well, I don't know who your Heidi is or <laughs> maybe what your Heidi is, um, but there's some people who have an understanding that that's how they need to relate to God. They need to make the best impression possible for God. And in one sense, this, this makes sense, right? I mean, you, you, you read Psalms like Psalm 15, which says, you know, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? In other words, who, who's actually qualified to go up into his presence? Who can go into the holy place? And it says, well, the one with clean hands and a pure heart. And you're meant to say, my hands might be clean, but my heart's a bit dirty. And so throughout the scriptures, we're, we're, we're given this impression that God is high and mighty and lofty, and he is. And that creates within some people this deeper drive that I'm going to make a good impression, that I'm going to please him. There's nothing wrong with wanting to please the Lord, but it sends people down some funny paths. Some people in their desire to, they, they realize God is so high, so majestic, so holy, so mighty, they give up. They, I, I, there's no way, there's no way I can please this God. There's no way I'm going to make him happy. And so they just said, you know what? I'm, my fate is sealed. I'm resigned to having God against me. And I'm just going to go and try to squeeze every last little ounce of joy that there may be found in this life for myself so I can have that. Other people, as you said, they dig down deep. This text before us today is all about how Jesus views truly devoted, pious people. What does it mean to be truly righteous? But again, who are we trying to impress? If I said to you, I want you to tell me three, three people right now that you really, really, really want to impress. How long before you could get their names or their faces in your mind? 
Whose opinion are you trying to change? Who are you afraid to show your uglier sides to? The bigger question though is what actually impresses Jesus? What impresses Jesus? This we're gonna be looking at today. And the big idea this morning is Jesus, he, he weighs our piety, that is our, our righteous deeds, our, our, our spiritual devotion. He weighs our piety by his measure. That's the first fundamental thing you need to get out of this passage today, is that if you're going to be in relationship with God, you come to God not on the basis of your, what, what you think is going to impress him. We need to set all that aside right now. And we need to ask, what is the measure that Jesus uses? We're going to see this morning that false piety is dangerous. We're also going to see that true piety is more dangerous. <laughs> and finally, that Christianity is life-giving. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for uh, this opportunity to open the scriptures this morning. We pray that through the Spirit, we would understand what you're trying to say to your church. That you would give us peace and grace. Lord, that you would just allow us to understand the things of heaven, that there would be clarity and there would be uh, a real freedom as we, as we understand what Christ has done for us and that we can worship him. Thank you for him and thank you for his blood that cleanses us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. By way of overview today, false piety is dangerous, true piety is more dangerous and finally, Christianity is life-giving. First of all, false piety. Jesus warns his disciples about spiritual pretenders. Verse, 20, uh, verse 45 of chapter 20. Jesus says, while all the people were listening, as Luke writes, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples. Now that's important. You know, we, we had a week off of Luke, but it was actually God did his thing and it was wonderful because you got to see last week from 1 Peter with Tim McBride, you got to see what a true spiritual leader ought to look like. The week before that, we looked at Jesus' confrontation with the leaders in Jerusalem who were not embodying what they were meant to be as the shepherds over God's people. So we've seen sort of a bad example, a good example uh, last week, and now Jesus, as he's rounding off his teaching in the temple, he's going to give a warning to his disciples. Now this is really important because when Jesus first arrived in Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, the first time he's been back there since way when he was a young pup. And, and now he's back in the temple and what he's doing from the temple is he's not practicing his sacrifices, he's not giving money, he's teaching. The knowledge of the Lord is flowing out now from the temple because the king has come back to his court. The Messiah is teaching in the city of God in the worship, sorry, in the house of God, in the worship center of God. And the people of Israel are meant to be listening to this. And for the first time in, in, in a little while in the gospel, here the disciples are again. You see, they've sort of faded into the background. They were kind of blended in with the crowd for a little while, but now they start to emerge again. And Jesus has a word for his disciples, but the people are listening. And that's really important. Just a side point, when you think about the message of Christ and the message of, of the cross and what he's saying, he has words for people who are followers of Jesus, but if you're somebody who's just like, you're on the periphery and you're just kind of listening in on the conversation, that's okay too because Jesus has things that will draw people on the outside in. So you never have to hear something that Jesus has taught or has said and think, you know, 
I don't know if that's for me. Like, is that's for the disciples. And I don't know if I'm a disciple yet. Am I allowed to, am I allowed to obey this? Yes, absolutely. You allowed to listen? Yes, absolutely. He's saying this in the hearing of the crowds. Now, what he gives in verse 46 and 47 is a warning. And what I want you to pay attention to as we go through these verses is who they are to be warned about, but secondly, the spheres in which these actions take place. So, verse 46, beware of the teachers of the law. These are the scholars, the exegetes, the scribes, the people that write commentaries, the experts in interpretation, the strong pastor-teacher types that, that you bring in for conferences, people that do what I'm doing now. Not saying I'm those things. <laughs> That's who the warning is. Beware of these people. Why? They like to walk around in flowing robes and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Notice the problem with these people is not necessarily what anything they've done. It's what they want. It's what they like. It's what they love. Notice these spheres. They like to walk around in flowing robes. In other words, they want to be seen with this sign of distinction. The, the, the robe, most likely here in this case, is, is this linen stola that they would, that they would wear. And it made them unmistakable. I met a guy once who was a minister. I forget which brand or denomination. And I was just starting out in ministry. And, and he, you know, we were talking sort of about sort of the peculiarities of the role. And he said to me, he said, oh, do you wear a collar? I said, I don't wear a clerical collar. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm non-denominational. I'm Baptist. You know, you know, I'm a very sort of low church. We don't do that. He said, oh, no, I am too. He said, but it's great on airplanes. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, they treat you so much better. He said, yeah. I, said I just have one. I just, I just pull out, so I, I pop it on, and, and then when I'm on the plane, they, you know, the people treat you nicely. They let you go first in line. They, you know, they do all sorts of stuff for you. Now, I, I don't know this man's heart, but, but, but what he's doing is exactly this. He's, tra he, he's trying to show his piety through, through how he dresses, and the idea is to create a separation or a barrier between the everyday people of God and these people of God, these experts in the law. Jesus says, they also love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues. They want to go through, you know, Richmond Marketplace, Windsor, and they want everybody to say, hey, pastor. Hey, hey, reverend. Now, as we saw last week, there, there is a place for, for honoring leadership and for honoring people who've served the Lord and, and who have a walk that conforms with the way of Christ. There's absolutely a place to, to show a respect for that. But these people, this is what they love. They love it. Every greeting, every time they hear their title, it's like a little, it's like music in their ears. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a little just note of affirmation. Every time they open the mail and they see Rev at the front of their name. 
They also love to have the most important seats in the synagogues. Now, we, we do church a bit differently, but the principle was very similar to a synagogue. The people would gather in this place once a week, but there would be, there would be rows that were facing the people. And in these seats is where the scholars would sit, the experts in the law. So imagine there's somebody sort of sitting up here next to me right now, and someone sitting over there, and they're, they're out looking at you, and you're looking at them. And as the speaker makes a point, you're watching. Did, did he nod at that? Did they say, that was a good point? Or, what, you know, what's, what's he saying? And so they walk in, they walk to the front, they sit down, they take their place of prominence. Again, this is not to say that there is no place for respecting those who have been called into leadership. But what this is saying is, beware of people that that's what they love. I think Australian culture is kind of helpful in this. I'm not from this culture, so forgive me for speaking about it. But one thing you guys really know how to do is cut down the tall puppy. Right? And, and it's kind of funny because you, you, you do it so well that, that, that you almost have learned how to make sure that you're not. So like, like if you're about to say something that looks like you're putting yourself up, you quickly know how to backpedal and sort of like slump down a little bit. So that just in case that blade gets, starts swinging, <laughs> you won't get your head lopped off. So in some ways, I think that's a, that's a healthy aspect of Australian culture is there is no, there's a lot less pretense. As one of my uh, theology professors said to me, he said, when I was first about to go to Australia, he said, he's from Australia, he said, Jonathan, he said, just be, be aware, their, their, their BS meter is a bit sensitive. <laughs> Excuse my language. It, it goes off pretty quick, pretty easy. If they detect you're, you're, you're full of something, they'll, they'll, they'll let you know. So in some ways it's healthy, but there can be in this sort of a false humility as well. And as we were discussing around the dinner table this week, as we were, or the breakfast table, and, and we were looking through Proverbs, and, and we're looking at Proverbs, and we read this proverb that says, human beings are satisfied by what they see on the outside, but God probes the heart. And we were talking about this, and we talked about how the fact that there is a false humility that's just as proud as the person who's happy to put themselves up. Because at the end of the day, the focus is still squarely on themselves, even if it's self-deprecation. The point Jesus is saying to his disciples is, these people love to do this, and in fact, they practice their piety so that they show through their spirituality and their religion that they're different and they're better than everybody else. Beware the minister, beware the pastor, beware the leader, beware the church member who puts another standard on your status with Christ. If they, if they have somehow sort of created another system formal or informal, whereby you achieve a higher standing with God if you go this route. And you might say, we don't do that. To which I say, mm, be careful. I remember a time, particularly in my youth, where I thought 
to be a good Christian meant you eventually go into ministry. Or you become a missionary. If you're really serious, you become a missionary. If you really love God, you would do that. That's not true. It's not a separate class. We can regard the people who, who sacrifice, but to run it a few ways with you, the missionary who's called to leave home is called to the same sort of detachment from this world as the plumber who's working in his hometown. He has to have the same amount of detachment from his world as the missionary has from their home. The, the same devotion to the word of God that the preacher or teacher is meant to have is the same devotion that the person whose job it is in the courtroom, in the boardroom, in the schoolroom, in the laundry room. That same devotion is meant to be there. So beware of anybody who begins to put sort of levels in and, and make it not about the grace that we've all received in Jesus Christ. If you're curious about this, just go and read the, the first chapter of a few of Paul's letters because Paul beautifully begins every week, uh, every letter by saying grace and peace to you, virtually every letter, grace and peace to you from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he puts it beautifully in Philippians when he says, we share in the same grace. Paul says the same thing that qualified me to be here telling the gospel to you is the same thing that qualifies you to be a recipient of that grace. Notice what happens though, verse 47, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. <laughs> we had to clarify this week. There's actually nothing wrong with long prayers. There's some long prayers in the Bible. <laughs> the problem here is it's for a show. Who for a show make long prayers. But the hint comes in verse 47. It says, they devour widows' houses. You say, how? You know, what does that mean? Now, to devour something, you know, anyone who's worked on the tools or done a long day outside, you, you, you finally get to lunchtime or you finally get home and you're just famished and you, that plate of food gets put in front of you and you just you, you devour it. That's the idea is that you, you think without regard for anything but the consuming. <laughs> That's how they were treating these widows' property. According to one scholar, he believes that what's going on here is that the teachers of the law, these experts in the scriptures, were not allowed to charge a fee for their teaching, but instead they, they used their position of influence in society to become experts in other things as well. So if you were a, a woman whose husband died, and you didn't have any other family member around to help you or to take, take care of you, for the legal matters, you would bring in the expert in the law. And they might have to sign some papers for you. They might have to testify on your behalf, almost like we use a notary public. And these experts in the law could charge exorbitant fees so that the widow who's simply trying to hold on to her property ends up having to give most of it to the expert whose job it is to come and keep it secure. We don't know exactly what it was, but that's not a bad theory. The point is they're actually out for their own gain. This is what they love. In the scriptures, Ezekiel 34 talks about how the bad shepherds, they eat the flock. 
Yes, they're walking around, they're shepherding the flock, but they find a nice prime lamb and they think, ooh, I'm a bit hungry tonight. I don't know if I want to eat rabbit or grouse or what, you know, squirrel tonight. What if we just pull one of these sheep from the flock? Let's cut that up and roast it. That'll be good. Jesus says their, their punishment will be most severe. Now, this is all couched in the phrase of a warning. Why is this a warning? I think it's a warning on two levels. It's a warning, first of all, because in society, these people have influence. These are the people with influence. We, we tell people, the more you're platformed in ministry, the more you're platformed in the church, the more right people have to question your motives. The more transparent you have to be. If you're in a leadership position, your leadership is not simply confined to the area or the scope in which you lead. Your, your transparency ought to be visible to everyone. Why? Because there's a strong influence that comes from having that position. Think what you want about the Billy Graham rule, but what you can't say is that he was unwilling to be transparent about his lifestyle. The Billy Graham rule was Billy Graham's famous policy that he would never be in a, in a closed place with a woman besides his wife. And he would bring men to travel with him who could verify that. So there's a warning here to the disciples because there's a recognition that these people have power and influence. But I think it's also a warning as well because when you see somebody who's striving really, really hard to be pious, and if that sort of take, takes hold in a group, you begin to see the group conform to that. People kind of glom onto that. Maybe you've been reading about the revival that's taking place. I don't know if they're calling it a revival yet, but what's been going on at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky? Raise your hand if you've been reading about that. Anybody read about that? I encourage you, check it out. One of a, a, a professor that Joanna used to work with, a, a professor that I had, he, he transitioned down to Asbury Theological College and he said, he wrote on Facebook about a week ago, he said at 10 o'clock in the morning, the students showed up for chapel as they usually do three times a week. At 10.45, the worship leader got up and said, let's sing one more chorus. And he said they never left. This professor who wasn't at the chapel showed up later that afternoon and they were still there. He came back at 8.30 at night, they were still there. He came back the next morning and there was a group that stayed throughout the whole night praying. And this chapel service, which uh, let me tell you, as someone who had to go to chapel services, it's not, it doesn't feel as spiritual as this. You sort of have to be there. And so as soon as you're released, you go. But this chapel service is going on for days, for weeks. And he said the peace that has settled over that place, the joy that settled over that place, he said, was unlike anything he knew. Well, he posted a couple days ago. It's now been about 10 days, and now it's, it's, the word is getting out. And he said, pray for us. He said, we had a well-known, quote-unquote, worship leader, professional worship leader, reach out to us and say, hey, would you like me to come and 
and help you lead? They said, no, our students are doing just fine. But he said, pray for us because he said, everyone's coming out of the woodwork. There are the desperate and the needy and those who are thirsty for God, absolutely. But there's also the spiritual tourists. There's also the people that are just voyeurs, they're curious. And he said, there's charlatans as well. He says, we're seeing it all. Pray for us. What he's pointing out is that there's this group dynamic when, when a movement takes hold, we're, and we get this in Australia, don't we? We get that we're, we're always noticing what's sort of happening in the group. And when this takes hold, this kind of, I'm going to be more spiritual than this person, it sucks people down into religion that is dry and destroys their souls. Well, Jesus says these men will be punished most severely. They will be punished to a greater extent, which means they're already not in the kingdom. They're, 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 not, they're, they're not in grace. They don't have grace. All they can expect is punishment, but theirs will be worse. Well, true piety is even more dangerous, but in, in a different way. <laughs> Verse 1 of chapter 21, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. As I said earlier, it's about more than one, one, less than one one-hundredth of a day's wage. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now we got to be, again, we got to be clear, we got to be careful. What is Jesus saying? He's not saying that the people, the rich people who were putting their money in did it for bad motives. He's not attacking their motives. That's not what this is saying. He's not saying your gift is not acceptable unless you put everything in. He's not saying that. He's making a valuation. And he's saying, in the kingdom of God, in looking at this person, looking at this widow, if you were to weigh up the offering, Jesus says, hers counts more than all the others. That ought to tell you and I that the calculus and the economics of the kingdom of God is entirely different than the economics of the kingdom of this world. It's entirely different. That means you and I need to not measure our spirituality on the person sitting to the right or to the left. You, you, you can't just look around and say, well, am I doing better than that person? Am I, doing, am I doing better than that person? We are not our own standard. We don't make our own standard. You can't even go in to set up your own standard for yourself. Jesus says he has a standard in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, this woman gave more than they did. It must have sounded preposterous. It must have sounded ridiculous. I want you to imagine you came here this morning with a $5,000 check. You got a $5,000 check written out. 
And well, we don't do checks much anymore, but you say you had 5,000 cash in, in, in your envelope. And you waited around after the service. Most of the people cleared out. You're getting your morning tea. You walk out, you walk by the box. There's only one other person there. Young, year six kid. And you know, you're waiting your turn. The year six kid puts theirs in the box. You go in, you drop in your $5,000 check. And you're thinking, wow, it feels so good to release that to the Lord. Oh, I feel, I feel eased. I feel lighter. And you walk out. Everyone's sort of left, packed up. You walk into the car park. Jesus comes up. He starts walking towards you. And you think, he saw my gift. I wonder what he's going to say. And he's walking up and he's got a smile on his face. And as he walks up, you start to, you know, take your hand out of your pocket to shake his hand and maybe give him a hug. And, and you see that he stops and you realize he bends down. He's not looking at you. He's looking at the year six kid who was playing over to the side. And he calls him over and he says to the kid, he says, thank you so much. You gave more than everybody else today. Nobody in that church gave more than you did. How would you feel? Oof. I mean, Jesus. Come on. Interest rates are rising. You know? My mortgage repayment's going up. You know what? My spouse is, you know, struggling to make ends meet. Like, come on, that, that, what I put in there, that was pretty significant, wasn't it? You see, it's one thing to read these stories on the page, but when you actually work them out in the details of your life, you realize the kingdom calculus is entirely different, which means you and I, brothers and sisters, need to stop measuring ourselves by our own standard, and we need to start measuring ourselves by the standard that Jesus puts forth for his kingdom. It's not about the dollar figure. Now, commentators are pretty divided on this as to whether or not this is, Jesus is holding up this woman as an example, saying, be like this woman, or more recently, whether we're to look at this and to say, what a terrible system. The same widow who's Houses are being devoured. Now, we don't know if it's the same person, but the same class of people. The same class of people who are being oppressed by the religious leaders and who are losing their possessions are the ones who are giving more than others in the kingdom. And it leaves them with absolutely nothing left. I want you to hold that in your mind and ask yourself, does Jesus have a problem with the system here? I want you to hold that for next week. It's going to put next week into context for you. But I don't think we have to choose. I think we can, we can at the same time hold this woman up and say, this woman was truly pious. This woman was truly devoted to God. And at the same time, we can look at this system that doesn't recognize the truly spiritual people. 
And in this is another reminder for us. True piety is more dangerous. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. We say, I wear a cross. I'm there. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. That's, that's like saying, you want to be my disciple, put on the gas mask. You want to be my disciple, load up the lethal injection needle. You want to be my disciple, get all the morphine tablets that'll send you off into nowhere. Not nowhere, but take you from this life. There is a true cost of being truly spiritual. Jesus would say to the disciples, blessed are you when they persecute you for my name's sake. He said they will insult you. They will mock you. They will say all kinds of things against you. Jesus said, if this is what they do to me, what do you think they're going to do to you? False religion is dangerous because it seeks the approval of men over the approval of God. True religion is dangerous to yourself because if you're trying to hold on to any part of yourself, God will say, you need to be willing to let that go. And you got to trust me with it. You got to trust me with your life that I will give you what you need when you need it for my purposes. But you can't be the king of your stuff. Whether it's your time, your relationships, your possessions, you can't be that, Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. It's dangerous. But there is so much hope in this. Because you know what this also says? This says Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. You may not have the ability to write a $5,000 check. You might not have the strength to do much of anything, but get on your knees. And you, you know what? Jesus sees that. And he says the Father sees that. If we focus in on prayer, Jesus said these people love to pray out loud for long periods of time so they make a show of lengthy prayers. But Jesus would say to his disciples, when you pray, go into your closet, get on your knees where your father hears you and he sees you in secret. This ought to dignify all of us. You don't need to give more than the next person. You don't need to be more outwardly spiritual by the world's standards than the next person. All that matters is, does the Lord have your heart and are you walking with him? And I'm telling you, there's probably some of you here who've made sacrifices this week. You made sacrifices this week out of your reverence and your love for God and you need to know God sees that. The enemy's going to come in and say, oh, it's worthless, it's pointless, what are you doing that for? You need to stand up for yourself. You need to stand your ground. You need to be firm. No one's going to give you anything. You need to take what's yours. As my roommate, who was a missionary kid in Japan, told me when I was in, when I was in college, he said, Jonathan, as I watched him lose argument after argument after argument, I said, I said Joey, I said, Joey, stand up for yourself. He said, Jonathan, he said, I don't have rights. 
I gave them all to Jesus. It's like, I don't insist on my way. I don't insist on myself. But I know the Lord sees what I've committed to him and he will render it back unto me on the day. I hope that, I, I hope that eases the burden of some of you who have been feeling overlooked and feeling like you haven't been seen and haven't been noticed and haven't been cared for. All these people depositing their rich gifts in the temple and Jesus watches the woman who can barely, literally scrape seven minutes worth of her way of a wage together. He watches her put it in. He counted it. He weighed it. He measured it. And this, brothers and sisters, is why it's life-giving. Remember this. The big picture is that pious deeds are no more able to cover a proud heart then poverty is able to cover a pure one. There's no number of pious deeds that will cover our pride. And there is no amount of poverty, of weakness, of, of languishing that's going to cover up a pure heart devoted to the Lord and to his kingdom. May God give us people with a pure heart. Jesus would say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What a wonderful comfort. God sees them, and so he's let, he lets them see him. True religion. Jesus leads us to worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Jesus would have a conversation with the woman at the well. And as Jesus begins to offer her the invitation to say, hey, if you knew who was asking you, you would ask him for living water and you would never thirst again. And in the course of that, that offering of the living water, the, the woman says, well, well, yeah, but you, you guys do it over here and, and, and we, we worship over here. And she gets down into the religiosity of it. And Jesus says, a time is coming and has come when true worshipers will worship God, neither on that mountain or on that mountain, but they will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus enables this to happen. That's why Christianity is life-giving, because it, it, it takes you out of, this, out of this bounded system of performance and reward. And it brings you into relationship with God himself. And through the Holy Spirit, you have communion with him and you are changed from the inside out. Do you know that change? The invitation I'm going to leave you with today, as we think about how we worship in spirit and truth, I want to put it to you this way. The invitation today is, what if you stopped trying to impress God and started with the fact that he loved you? And when your mind begins to wrestle with that and fight it and say, I don't know that he loves me, I want you then to remember the cross where for once and for all time, God definitively showed his love for us. And again, Say, do I really need to impress him? 
Welcome in, children. We're so glad you're back. It's great to see you. We're about to have a baptism soon. Can we get a round of applause for our kids? And they're amazing teachers. Uh, we're going to have a baptism very soon, so kids, don't get, don't get too comfortable. If, you're, if you want to come watch, you can, you can move up to the front if you like. It will also be, uh, we'll also have a view on the screen. We realize that sometimes the line of sight is difficult uh, to the baptismal, but we invite you to come and to see what's happening. Uh, we're going to be baptizing Paul Leal. Paul, wave to everybody. There's Paul over there. Everybody say hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. You're going to be hearing from him uh, in a little bit, and uh, he has an amazing story of God, God, God intervening with his grace. But before we leave this moment, before we leave this moment, uh, I've asked Emily to, to lead us in, the, in this song, which really just speaks to what I think this passage is all about. So I invite you to stand with us as we sing uh, Heart of Worship. Thanks. 